This is a recording conversation between me, Dror Poleg, and Professor Nicholas Bloom of Stanford University about the state of remote work. It was originally recorded as a live event on LinkedIn Live, and now Nick and I am sharing this recording with you. We hope you enjoy. Great to see everyone. I'm hosting today Professor Nicholas Bloom of Stanford University. Uh, Nick has been studying remote work over the past two decades. Uh, initially, as kind of a marginal trend among his various other interests and over the past few years as his main area of research. Uh, Nick has an ongoing survey, like a running survey of thousands of uh, employees and also thousands of executives trying to kind of keep a pulse over uh, the state of remote work. I see that some people are still not hearing us. I think you probably hear us now already. Like, I think there's a bit of a delay in the comments. Um, and for those of you not familiar with me, my name is Joro Poleg. I'm an economic historian. I write a weekly newsletter about the future of work, the future of cities, uh, and the future in general. I also wrote a book called Rethinking Real Estate, uh, which came out just before COVID and predicted a part of the major reshuffling that we're currently seeing uh, in the office market, in the housing market, and all the things that are downstream uh, from that. So, Nick, first, welcome, and thank you so much for taking the time and joining me today. Thanks for having me, Andrew. Where do we find you? Are you home or in some exotic uh, island somewhere? Or I, I wish I was in some <laughs> exotic island. I'm actually uh, at home. I, I've done my very best to like I'm not even in a particularly exotic place in the home. You can probably see there's like a bed lying behind me, you know, it's like, and there's a microphone outside. So this angle is uh, the, you know, bare minimum. You can see there's like a light thing back there, but it's, I'm trying to, if I tilt it anymore, it hits the curtain. So it's like probably most people doing their best to make their home office look professional. Very nice. Well, good job so far. So we'll jump straight into it. You know, we hear so much noise and obviously there's so many interested parties telling us that everyone is back, that nobody is back, that people want to be here or that people want to be there. What is the current state of affairs as far as remote work is concerned? How many people are back? How many people have been back? What are you seeing in the numbers? So it's kind of a story of three parts. So just to give you three levels, before the pandemic, there was almost, you know, hardly anyone worked from home. There was some 5% of days in the US, but it wasn't very high. During the pandemic, at the peak, it goes to 60% of full days that will work from home. So anyone that could work from home was, and they're doing it pretty much full time. This is like May, 2020. We've now slowly dropped back and it looks like we're now stabilizing at about 30% of days. So that is an enormous pickup versus pre-pandemic. The way this is shaping out is there are really two groups. There's about 15% of all Americans that are fully remote. Uh, some 15, one five. One five, yeah. Mm -hmm. So about a sixth of Americans are fully remote, some tech workers. A lot of people in stuff like payments processing, accounting, tech, uh, call centers, et cetera. There's a, about another 30%, which is probably covers a lot of people listening, that are hybrid. So these are professionals, managers. But I think of my grad students from Stanford, a lot of them, and they are typically coming into the office two or three days a week and working from home two, day, two or three days a week. And I think that's stabilized. So it's, we've been in this situation now for four or five months. I talked to honestly hundreds of organizations and you know, including my own university, and we're basically settling down into this as hybrid for many people's fully remote for some. And then the other half I've missed out. If you do your maths, we're missing about 55%. And these are the people that have to come in every day. 
they are more like frontline workers, retail manufacturing. So we'll come back to the other half, but before we get there, I assume, you know, we were both based in the US, the media in the world over, over, <laughs> over indexes, uh, American culture and American current affairs. But is this remote thing, is this a global phenomenon? How does it vary between countries? What, what tends to drive these differences, if any? Great. So certainly the increase is a global phenomena for sure. So I have data around the world, including some data for South America, bits for Africa, et cetera. All of these saw increases. But it's worth remembering the levels are not the same. So the US, Canada, and Northern Europe are roughly the same levels. They have roughly 30% of full paid days at home, mainly driven by professionals, you know, and some people working fully remote. If you go into Asia, it's lower. Australia, New Zealand, interestingly, is lower. One big driver of this is obviously a level of development. So if in America, you know, a lot of people are in high-end, high-paid jobs, office jobs, you can do this from home. Another factor that explains if you take, say, Japan or South Korea versus the U.S., is they've had less extreme lockdowns. So interestingly, if you look across the U.S., places with very aggressive and long-lasting lockdowns now have higher levels of work from home. And I think the reason is, if you look in the data, is work from home works really well. You know, not everyone wants to be fully remote, but most people discover one or two days a week is really helpful, helps recruitment, helps productivity. It's, it's pretty much all good. And, but firms didn't know this in advance. So if you're forced into doing this for six months or a year, you discover, hey, this thing is actually pretty good and you tend to stick with it. So obviously I know that, you know, that point about the length of lockdown and the impact of remote work, you know, a lot of people have strong opinions about it because it ties into their politics, but trying to avoid that, what I read into it and tell me if I'm wrong or how do you see it? is that there's basically a lot of other places with strong pent-up demand for remote work, but they just don't know it yet. And maybe there's another crisis, so there'll be another trigger at some point in a year, in two years, in five years, that's going to push them even further into that direction. Is that a correct way to look at it? Yes, totally. So I, I think we as society collectively made a mistake, maybe going back five, 10 years, that we had nowhere near the right levels of work from home. So I've been working on work from home for more than you know, for almost 20 years now, and look, if you go back 20 years ago, it's a lot of telephone calls and emailing files. It was okay. It wasn't great. My parents did when I was a kid and it there is not even, you know, personal computers, horrible, but for the, at least for the last probably five, so, you know, maybe even 10 years, we've had cloud so we can do file sharing and we've had, you know, video calls and zoom teams, et cetera. And that has changed everything. And so for most people, it actually is efficient to work from home Monday, Friday, you save a lot of commute time. People are better doing quiet work at home. Um, and places that haven't done it, like Australia, New Zealand has lower levels than Europe and the U S I think you're right. They're probably missing a beat. They'll get there eventually, I hope, but in a, in a perverse way, the lockdown by forcing people to experiment, led a lot of firms, individuals to say, you know, this thing is really pretty good. I don't particularly <laughs> want to be at home. You know, a lot of people saying, I don't want to work from home, including me all the time. Actually, you know, I'm going to go into work later today, but two, three days a week actually improves productivity, keeps people happier has some environmental benefits. So, you know, we should be doing it again. It's only half of workers that can, but for those half that can, we should be doing this going forwards. Had some housekeeping announcement. Looks like the sound is working now. I think some people are starting the recording from the beginning if they join late. So maybe I see that they're commenting that there's no sound, but if they'll wait for 30 seconds, they'll see it. Those in the comments, I see you're supporting each other. So thank you for that. <laughs> it's good to see you all uh, working together remotely. Obviously, 
So Nick, you, you hinted before at, you know, those other people that are not part of, uh, you know, of, of the current calculation of remote or non-remote. Uh, we tend to think obviously of work from home as some sort of uh, affliction, so to speak, of offices uh, specifically. How does the ability to work remotely affect actually jobs and employers that are not office-based, if it does at all? Great. So yes, offices are very, are very work from home focused. So that's kind of ground zero, but it's worth noting again, only about 35% of Americans will have the best data, but it's going to be true for across Canada, Northern Europe, Australia, New Zealand, et cetera. Japan probably work in offices. So the majority don't. There are other locations where clearly this works pretty well. So if I think of say hospitals, we have hospitals on campus in Stanford. You know, my neighbor across the road, I'm actually, because if I turn the camera around, I'm looking at you know, her house. She's a doctor. She said she works from home now one day a week. And so that's your it, research. You're looking at the neighbors and keeping notes. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> my neighbor goes back for instance, with, he's in a startup and he's, you know, fully remote too. So he's another great example of the impact of this. But, you know, my neighbor, she was saying, look, she sees patients four days a week, uh, but there's a bunch of patients that want to get a prescription filled out, get test results back, want to check in. They're happy to do that remotely. She's happy to mm -hmm. do it remotely. So she's doing it from home one day a week. I'm in education. Teaching is definitely better in person, so it's research meetings. But say meeting PhD students for a half an hour check-in, it's totally fine, particularly if you're sharing data. People in manufacturing, construction. I, I worked in retail a bit many years ago. You know, again, you want to be in store four days a week, but it's not unreasonable on the fifth day if you're particularly, you're supervising multiple stores. You have check-ins for each store manager mm -hmm. for half, you know. So office is a ground zero, but it's definitely not the only place. They just tend to be office focused. So I'd say probably while there are only 35% of workers in them, they probably account for half of all work from home days. Mm -hmm. So in hindsight, I mean, again, you, me, me as well, you know, we've been looking at this space for, for a long time and we've been interested in, it, in the face of a lot of denial and lack of interest, I'd say, from other people. Uh, what was the academic consensus before the pandemic, you know, a moment before COVID? What signs were there? What, why did we miss them? Why was it so hard to explain them even if we didn't miss them? What was your experience on that front? Before COVID, I wrote, Two, three papers on work from home. You know, I don't claim that I had any great insight into it. I was nudged into it from various reasons, including, you know, experiences with my wife actually taking maternity leave from different employers. Um, and I wanted to organize a conference on it before the pandemic. There just weren't enough papers. So I just gave up and never did it. So academics, there are a few papers. They generally, the consensus was it is good but there just wasn't enough to really form much of a consensus, if any. I mean, there was just so few papers. I actually ran a conference with a number of, you know, co-organizers at Stanford two weeks ago. So six of us ran this conference and it was great. There was an amazing, you should go, it's, it's, it's linked to on our, on my website, incredible set of papers, really great research, all kinds of different angles, like levels, impacts on real estate, impacts on offices, how to best manage it. So now I think the consensus is this thing is here to say, it's good in improving, you know, employees' happiness, it's improving productivity. It has some pretty far-ranging impacts on cities, on even things like fertility or, you know, on, on labor force participation, everything. I mean, it's amazing how much change has been impacted and changed by uh, the rise of work from home. So you mentioned the, the work from home conference that you organized at Stanford, I think, a week ago. 
what are some of the highlights? You kind of told us which feels the effect, but like some points that you think are surprising or remarkable as far as you're concerned that you think our audience would appreciate. I mean, one thing that was a broad theme that was really interesting for people listening, the effect on productivity, it seemed to depend critically on firms being well-managed. So there are four or five papers that look at the impact of work from home on firm performance, individual performance, and some find very positive effects and some find actually quite negative effects. And I think what's going on is this, which is, uh, Joy, if you are managing me and I'm in the office, you can kind of see what I'm doing. I look at my, my keyboard working away. You look like you're being useful. Yeah, yeah, exactly. You're almost asleep, you know, and, and being very unproductive. When I'm at home, you can't see me. So what you really need is rather than what I call input management, managing what I'm doing, you need output evaluation systems. And it looks mm -hmm. like firms that have good performance evaluation systems, you know, beefy and well-run HRs. It's not so much, you know, tip box ticking as you saying to me, Nick, I want you to meet these five objectives. I'm going to assess mm -hmm. you, collect data, ask for feedback from colleagues and clients. If you do that, great. If not, well, you know, we're going to have to think about how to fix that. Firms have that kind of setup very effectively seem to allow employees to work from home because you say Mondays, Fridays, maybe even Thursdays, you're at home, but you know, you need to meet your objectives and work hard. Firms that don't have good management practices really suffered. So I think one of the lessons are if you want employees at home two, three days a week, which I think most companies can allow certainly professionals to do, you need good performance management systems. And that's better for them. So if it's me and I'm at home on a Friday, I want to think I don't need to be micromanaged by draw. I want to be able to, you know, have my meetings, but maybe mm -hmm. go for a run or go pick my kids up. But I'm safe knowing that all I'm being assessed on really is getting my job done. And so if I say go to the dentist for an hour or two, I maybe work a bit later that evening or on Saturday morning to make up for it. But it's my choice. So it's kind of a win-win, but you do need that performance management structure. Something that, that you just hinted at that, that I've also read, I think, in your own research and elsewhere is the fact that, you know, a lot of people, when they hear remote work or they, or they hear work from home, obviously they think of the physical aspect more than anything else. You know, where are you going to conduct the work? But it seems like another thing that remote unlocked is that flexibility, the ability of people to choose their own time. When do they do the thing? How long does it take them? What do they do first? And that also, again, in some cases, unlocks a lot of productivity. In some cases, I guess it leaves people completely stranded and, and losing control of their work. But, but is that a correct reading of, of, the, of what we know so far? Yeah, totally. So if you survey people, we've been surveying tens of thousands of people. And the number one benefit of working from home is avoiding the commute by some margin. Actually, they, you know, the typical person saves 60 minutes of commute. They actually save another 10 minutes. They don't spend as long getting ready. Horrifying, maybe, but they're less likely to brush their teeth wear clean clothes, shower, but you know, we'll set that aside. But number two is exactly as you said, the flexibility. And that was something I remember that wasn't obvious in 2020 and has become clear over the last couple of years. In that, again, if you, if, if you're my manager and you give me clear performance objectives and then let me get on with it, on those work from home days, I tend to often start earlier because I'm not commuting, but I'll take breaks. I may shift some work to other evenings, you know, the weekends a bit, but you see, you know, I have a different project looking at the attendance of golf courses and it's really? way up on like Monday, Friday mornings versus pre-pandemic because people are going to play golf and there's actually nothing wrong with that. If I'm getting my job done and it turns out I'm a big golf player and the course is free on Friday morning and I make up for it by working on Saturday, you know, that's fine. I'll go to the dentist or see my kids. So that flexibility, I think, is really valuable, but it does mean you just need good performance management to unlock it. 
So it looks like American presidents had it right from the beginning. Just go play golf and, you know, uh, the world will I'm take care of it. Yeah, I don't play golf. So, yeah, this isn't my sport, but yeah. Yeah, me neither. Uh, you mentioned, I think this would be of great interest to a lot of, of my audience in particular, you know, that, that some papers in the conference touched on the impact on cities and impact on real estate. Uh, any highlights on that front? Yeah, I mean, this. I, I, I actually tweeted something out this morning and I'll back into some of the others, but one of the things that's pretty interesting is we're looking at via venture capital companies fund their uh, startups, uh, you know, their investments. And you see post-pandemic, they've moved much further away. And in fact, there's part of a general phenomena of things moving out from city centers out to the suburbs. So a lot of people are saying, you know, if I don't have to come to work five days a week, I only need to be in two, three days a week. I don't need to live in the center of the city. I can live out in the suburbs and have a home office. That's, of course, affecting commercial real estate. So that's struggling a bit, particularly lower class buildings. You know, if you have a nice shiny building in the city center, employers still want it because they want to have a nice place for people, even on the hybrid, they're coming in three days a week. But if it's a kind of a nasty office that's lots of little cubicles, not a, a big footprint, those things are struggling a bit. Um, you know, it's affecting way, it's affect, affecting many, many things. I mean, another thing that's interesting, by the way, is it seems to be driving a rise in startup levels. So if you think of, you know, now if you're starting a new company, if you don't need an office, you can use cloud computing, software as a service, fractional, you know, CEO. Yeah, CFO. the hurdle to starting a business is much lower and the it's risk. way lower. And in fact, it's something I was going to put out. And if your know. boss is not behind your back, you can also run the business from home anyway. Yeah, it's, <laughs> you maybe can start a business with, you know, $5,000, $10,000 in the bank rather than needing $200,000. So it's much easier to start it. And actually, see, I was going to put something out later this week, is you see a big increase. Um, of startups post-pandemic. There's an initial drop, but mm -hmm. then it surges way up. Uh, and I think it's because the cost of starting businesses is much lower. And again, you know, picking on another neighbor, another neighbor of mine, he started a fully remote business and he says, it's just the overheads are very low. And if it works, it works. And if not, you know, his, his wife's still working. You know, he's kind of like the two of them, they're kind of risk sharing across. Mm -hmm. the Interesting. So when, when we look ahead, like trying to, to apply some foresight, what is it now that we don't know or that we need more data on? What should we keep an eye on over the next 12 to 24 months to kind of try to tell us where things are headed or whether we are already where it's at and we should just expect things to stay the same? What, what are you missing in terms of stuff that you would like to know or have more data on? I, I think the biggest thing is, I think we're looking at what I'll call a Nike swoosh of working from home. So currently levels will go down maybe a little bit because the recession. So the recession, there are some employers out there that kind mm -hmm. of want to, but commas, get mean, get tough, haul people back. I don't agree with it, but you know, that is what it is. I don't think it would drop much, but a little, maybe a little bit. I mentioned it's 30% now. I doubt it'll ever go below 25%. The long run is really positive and that's driven by technology. Now, what that is, I don't quite know, but the fact is the number of people working from home is up five or six fold. And so every tech firm, hardware firm, startup I talk to is like, we're desperately innovating to create better technologies to support these people because that's where the money is. And there's a lot of money. If you come up with a fancy pants, you know, better video platform or piece of equipment, you can make a lot now. And so if you look ahead, is it two, maybe three, certainly five years out, the technology is going to be way better. Things mm -hmm. like you know, virtual reality, holograms. Like take this, I'm looking at you on a laptop screen. It's not very big. Five years from now, my suspicion is these screens will be much bigger. They'll be lighter. 
there'll be multiple cameras. So when I look at you, it's not, if I'm looking at your face, it's not like I'm, there'll be mm-hmm. eye contact. There'll be cameras in the screen. There's a bunch of stuff that will make it much more personable and effective. So I would say if you're looking three plus years out, out technology is going to mean work from home levels, I think will be higher then than they are now. So thinking a bit on, on the downside of it, and I see a bunch of questions in, in the chat about related topics as well. Uh, obviously, the rise of the remote work immediately for many people sparks the fear of, you know, mass offshoring, mass unemployment, at least for some markets. Are such concerns justified? What is or isn't likely to happen, do you think? And obviously, in what type of time horizon? Yes, um, so I think it will increase offshoring. If anything, it's like to increase outsourcing and relocating even more. So mm-hmm. again, I know a lot of Bay Area companies are saying, you know, we don't need to, if IT, if tech support is fully remote, we don't need it in the Bay Area. Mostly they're sticking to the US because of confidentiality and ease reasons, but in the long run, they move offshore. It's worth noting right now, you know, we're incredibly tight on labor markets. Inflation is a major problem. The Fed is jacking up rates to try and combat that. And the reason is there just aren't enough people to fill jobs. So to give you a number, there's more than twice as many vacancies as unemployed people in the US. So the problem mm-hmm. isn't the jobs, it's the supply of labor. So I think what we're going to see is folks in Mississippi, maybe folks you know in Mexico, in Nigeria, around the world that are high skilled that could do these kind of jobs. Some of them will get offshored. I actually think that's good in the long run. Some will get on, if you're an American, some will get onshored into the US. So look, if you're a British company and you want to, hire a designer and you can do that remotely and they're the best designers in the US, it's going to go both ways. So broadly, I think it's a good thing, actually. And I think it's an opportunity for firms, particularly if you're in incredibly expensive big cities, to think some activities you can move to, you know, lower cost of living rural areas where there's people that love to take those jobs and it's hard for them to commute, but we'll do it remotely. So again, reading into some of what you said, the people who are best at their jobs can now compete in a larger market, can tap into more opportunities, uh, can, you know, basically match with the opportunities that, that fit their skills at an optimal level. How do you think that impacts income inequality? Is remote work a democratizing force? Is it a thing that will, you know, create even larger stars than ever? Maybe both, maybe something else. How, what's your reading of it? It's a, Great and very complicated question. So in the very short run, I think it's been, it's not, it's been bad for inequality, not so much income. So just to, just to explain, if you look at the top half of, you know, people in America and Europe by income, they tend to be grads, probably pretty much everyone listening. They've got to work from home typically two, three days a week. Mm-hmm. People report that's worth about a five to 10% pay increase. So all of us listening have got, including me, including you have got this nice perk. On the other hand, it's a good thing. You don't want to, you know, I, you shouldn't say that. Let's level everyone down. We should be leveling up. So I, I don't want to take it away. In the longer run, the, some of the positive effects on inequality is I see it in the Bay Area. So a lot of Bay Area employers I talk to have said, we're going to hire folks from across the US because, you know, if you get somebody doing IT support or coding out in Mississippi, their cost of living is way lower and they're going to outcompete. So I think it's going to spread employment more across country, you know, within the country and across countries. The people that may be risk, you know, tricky is if you want to live in a very expensive place like the center of New York, you want to work fully remotely, you're going to find that you are now competing with people in lower cost of living areas. Mm-hmm. So that probably means, you know, you're not going to see as much salary growth or you go in two days a week and then you're only competing with people in your city. 
it's hard basically to earn a New York wage if you're fully remote in a fully remote job. And, you know, one option is to move to a lower cost of living place. The other is to take a job that has you coming in two days a week. And then you're competing in just a New York labor market. So, Or to be attractive enough to employers that they'll just pay you whatever you ask for. And Yeah, I mean, I talk yeah, to employers. Many employers are saying, look, we're looking in the segmented labor market for fully mm -hmm. remote jobs. We're hiring them. We're advertising nationally and we're offering what's a nationally competitive wage. For mm -hmm. hybrid jobs, we're hiring them in our local labor market. Most companies I talk to, certainly larger companies are in you know, bigger cities, suburbs, Bear in New York, DC, Chicago, et cetera. And those are definitely more expensive, higher earning areas. Staying with the, with the negative stuff, or, or maybe something some people consider positive. I know a lot of executive, executives are almost gloating at the news of an impending recession because they're saying, oh, these people will come back very quickly to the office once the labor market softens or there's a recession. Uh, how do you think this will play out? So I don't think, so there's three totally different things. There's fully in-person, hybrid, fully remote. So fully remote has some major ups and downsides. You know, it, it's generally common amongst big tech firms and startups. Outside of that, there aren't too many fully remote firms. Hybrid is much more the debating point, actually. And well-organized hybrid will outcompete five days a week in person. So most people want to do it. So it improves retention recruitment. It actually, if you say have people work from home Monday, Friday, come in Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday for like social meetings together events, that improves productivity. The numbers are typically three to 5%, possibly save a bit of space, maybe. So when I talk to firms, you know, I've been involved in a randomized control trial and hybrid and, you know, their response is like, this is all good. You know, like support, you know, makes employees happier, improves productivity, actually supports DEI a bit. Mm -hmm. And maybe save space costs. There are no downsides and nothing that a recession is going to reverse, which is why I think it's pretty robust. I'm aware there are some particularly older managers that have had a long career of in-person activity and are kind of loath to move away from that, but they are not the majority. And that group is shrinking as time goes on because two years in, they've seen how much it works out. I don't think it's going to drop back a bit. I mean, firms basically do what makes them as much profit as possible. Turns out that is hybrid. It's like, I'm not, you know, when I talk to firms, so the market like, is going to keep driving, you know, driving things towards remote probably. And if things get tighter, then companies are not less like, less likely to decide to spend more on office and on perks. Yeah. It, it, in the recessions, firms yeah. want to make profits as much as in boom times. They want to survive and hybrid actually, you know, helps reduce costs and improves productivity and remote certainly for some roles as well. So I don't think, we'll get, I don't think there's any major going back a little bit, but you know, most of so we're almost up against time. We can probably spend a few extra minutes if you're still around, because I see there's a lot of questions from the audience. So I want to pick up a few of them and maybe paraphrase. I see this question from Caroline. Uh, so any comments on what companies are doing to attract people back? What seems to work? What doesn't seem to work? Or even what type of approaches uh, you would recommend to companies that are trying to bring them back if you think that's, that should be a goal? Yeah, so totally. So there, there are two things. One is a major. So when you ask people why they want to come into the office, the, you know, again, to lay, lay down the numbers, the typical person wants to come in the office two, three days a week. There is a big spread. So 30% of people want to be fully remote, but the other mm -hmm. 70 want to come in at least one day a week. When you ask them why they want to come in, they want to come in because of socializing, working with colleagues, mentoring, everything that's face-to-face. -face. And what that means is to make return to the office appealing. It's not like, 
about getting Lizzo. You know, Google did that for one day. It was great. Or the free bagel or anything else. But you're going to need to basically get coworkers in on the same day. So the recipe is relatively straightforward, which is in teams or whole companies. You want people in on the same day. Now, in 2021, we didn't do that because we we're deliberately socially distancing because of mm -hmm. the pandemic. But we're now in a state where the dominant driving force is firm saying, we want you to enjoy coming back. So what we're going to do is say, come back. Let's say you have a 3-2. It would be Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday. We really want everyone back. And we're going to make use of it. We're not going to have you come back and sit in a cubicle. That's pointless and it's irritating. We're going to come back and make those three days full of meetings, presentations. So like go all out, but focus it on like a specific time so you can actually create something. That yeah, people value, OSHA, I think. OSHA working. And if you don't have three days of those activities, don't bring people back for three days. If you mm -hmm. only have two days worth of meetings, trainings, presentations, and lunches, only bring people back for two days. But then there's logic. Then you come back because you're like, you know, Drew and I and everyone are in the office. It's social. I'm having lunch. I'm seeing the point of it. The other thing that's kind of interesting is for firms, they may want to think about a month or two weeks a year that's remote, fully remote, pick a low time. It's quite appealing for employees to say, imagine August is pretty quiet. So we're going to let the entire company go fully remote for the entire of August. People are still working. They may be working a bit more slowly. They're still working, but it's hugely appealing for a retention recruitment tool. That's a big appealing thing. I probably wouldn't let people choose their own months because any month, you know, there's always somebody away and it's hard to have mm -hmm. meeting. That's the other thing that I, I see becoming more popular. Interesting. Related to that teamwork, so a, comp a question from Jeremy. So we didn't really discern between, you know, individual tasks and collective tasks in terms of the impact on productivity or the type of things that seem to work. Do we have any data on this or even like an, an inkling from your side on what type of jobs or tasks tend to lend themselves better to be done remotely? Yeah, that is a great, that is true on average. Certainly if it's an individualistic task, take working in a call center. I've done, you know, I visited and worked with research and call centers for years. That's mostly an individual task. I agree there's some joint team training and stuff, but that works very well remotely. And in fact, in mm -hmm. recent America, I think probably the majority of call center work by this point may be remote actually. Um, anything that's joint seems to benefit from some time in person. Even fully remote firms like Upwork, Automatic, Core, et cetera, have people meet up, say, every other month for like a week to kind of mm -hmm. build bonds. So, yes, you know, from there's plenty of, you know, increasing numbers of studies and even from personal experience, meetings generally work better, at least some of them being in person. Mentoring, there's a huge sense that mentoring and training is much better in person. For me, for teaching, for research seminars, it's definitely better in person. But that's not what we spend all our time doing, which is why hybrid kind of winning out for, for reading, writing, data work, maybe draw, you know, this kind of thing. If we've met yesterday in the office, we don't need it for a meeting today to be in person. We can do it mm -hmm. for two, three days. It's just, you know, nice that you meet every other, you know, every month or twice a week in person. So a mix of quiet stuff, one-on-ones at home, plus bigger meetings, training, mentoring in the office seems to work well. So yes, individual tasks are, are what, on home days, and if your job is entirely an individual task, then that's the kind of thing that lends itself to being fully remote. That makes sense. I, you know, I, I tend to think, to try to think beyond what's currently happening about some more radical scenarios. And I think we'll see in some companies and industries also, you know, acknowledging that certain things are less efficient, but maybe their costs become so low that companies are willing to throw five different people at a problem. And, right. You know, if one of them solves it, that's good. If the other four fail, it doesn't matter because, you know, the cost of employing them Again, 
there's no barriers like we had before. You don't need to create a desk for them. Maybe you don't have to hire them formally. Just give them a task. You pay them something. If one of them succeeds or seems to pull ahead or have a, an idea of how to perform the task, you keep with that person and, you know, you keep the other guys for a pool to, you know, to, to, to give them another chance maybe with a different task. But I think that the structure of work and of all corporations might change. Uh, but that's, that's farther afield. Uh, a good question here from a, an anonymous uh, LinkedIn user. So we spoke a lot about how the increase in flexibility had a positive impact. I, we know that some people force people back. Have we seen any signs of a decrease in productivity or a decrease in well-being or increase in employee churn because of that kind of sudden pullback on, on flexibility and on, on, on remote? Or is it too early for that? Um, no, it's hard to tell in the aggregate. The economy is, I mean, up until recently, it's performing pretty well. We know we're about to hit. We could well hit recession. That's because of monetary policy. Generally, what's happening in, happened in terms of firms, if they've, if they've gone from fully remote to dragging people back typically three days a week. I actually think for most companies, for most professional kind of organizations, it generally, the productivity maximum probably is having people coming in two, three days a week. Look, it very, I don't want to give a one size fits all, because it depends, as we just discussed, if an individual task, maybe it's best to be fully remote. But if I think of a standard organization, I talk to hundreds of them, most organizations do some creative activity, some routine, some training, et cetera. Think of, you know, any big retail manufacturing, you know, tech finance company you can think of. They generally seem to work most effectively every two, three days a week in the office, two, three days a week at home. But critically, they have to be organized. So there's no point mm -hmm. random people coming in, which is why productivity is, is not being damaged by getting, drawing people from five days a week remote to getting them in, let's say, three days a week in the office. If you were to force everyone back full time, which some firms have been talking about, it's, it's hard to know what, you know, Tesla, for example, is in the media, but it's not hard to know what Elon Musk really means. And he says, you're going to be in the office 50 hours a week, but these guys are working 80. Does he really mean five days or does he mean, I mean, but for firms that are pushing for a full five day return, I think that is costly. And I think the most obvious cost to them you're going to see is quit. You're going to see people quitting. Yeah. And, and on the diversity issue, it turns out it looks like people who are most likely to quit are from survey data. If you look at people who are diverse in their workplace by gender, by age, by race, actually by religion, by politics. So what we mean is people who report less than 10% of their coworkers are in the same cell have a mm -hmm. slightly lower comfort level to coming into work and are those that are probably most likely to quit. So, you know, if you're the only person about 50 in an office full of 20 year olds, it's slightly less comfortable. They're all talking about TikTok and you've, you know, I, I'll be 50, yeah. yeah, I don't use TikTok. So if that were the situation, you know, you don't really want to go in five days a week and then the firm gets tough, you're most likely to quit. And that's going to be true. You know, if you want to support diversity, which is clearly an important and valuable initiative, that's another reason to allow people to work from home, typically two, three days a week. Excellent. So I, I think we, it looks like Literally, we could have continued this for a few more hours and maybe we should do a follow-up in a few months. We have a lot of great questions, but we are up against time and I want to respect our schedule and your schedule and obviously our guests. So where can people find you, Nick? How can they keep learning and, and keep track of, of what you're doing and stay abreast of the latest research? Yeah, thanks, bro. So uh, LinkedIn and Twitter, I'm pretty active on both. You know, it's interesting. They have ups and downsides. Like they have different angles. They're not better or worse. They're just... just they're different. I've, you know, LinkedIn tends to be more constructive conversations. Twitter tends to be shorter bursts of things are put out. I don't tend to engage as, 
much on Twitter because it can spiral badly wrong pretty quickly. <laughs> and then I have a website. It's called WFH, as in working from home, WFHresearch.com. We put a lot mm -hmm. of data on there as well. Excellent. So, Nick, thank you so much for your time. I've, I've, I've learned a lot and I'm sure the audience appreciates it very much. And thank you, everyone who joined us. It's amazing to see hundreds of people who uh, skip their lunch break to, uh, to spend their time with us. Uh, the recording will be available immediately once we finish the live session. So feel free to share it, to revisit it. Uh, if you learned anything useful, feel free to tell your friends about it, to quote uh, Nick or I, and uh, we'll see you again soon. This was my conversation with Professor Nicholas Bloom. Please check the show notes for links and other information. Thank you again for listening. Please subscribe to this podcast in your favorite podcasting app or on my website, drawerpoleg.com. And of course, if you enjoyed it, please share it with your friends or tweet back to me any feedback or thoughts. Thank you and see you next time.